to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. We are back this week with our discussion on disability. And this week, uh, I am here with my lovely co-host, and I have with us Darren. Hey, hey. Sarah. Hi, everyone. Kevin. Howdy. And I'm Stacy. And this week we have a special guest, and I will let Darren take the lead on that. Yes. So this week we um, we're we are continuing this practice of listening and learning and and hearing from great people. And a few years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, this advocate and this outspoken person who um, I was like. I, I was there to, to, to lead a retreat and I was like, oh, we should have just like collaborated on this. Cause y'all is, y'all got this, y'all is ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I had the pleasure of meeting Zoe Sheets, who, um, is a disability advocate, a, um, you know, I'm going to get all the, all the titles wrong. So as usual, I'm going to say, Zoe, would you introduce yourself to us and let us know all the things about who you are and what you do in the world? Sure. Um, thanks, everyone, and thanks for having me here. Um, my name is Zoe, and I use she, her pronouns. I am a medical student. Um, I am a part of the campus ministry on staff as the director of um, now Service and Justice, formerly Director of Leadership Development, but we're new, so we shift everything every year. Um, I am a disability advocate, um, an activist, and um, a consultant, and um, I am myself disabled. I also identify as um, queer, white, cisgender, and female. Um, so that's just a little bit about me, but those get things to me really uh, kind of weave together to paint the whole picture of how disability advocacy started for me, being someone in faith spaces, in science spaces, in higher education, and all of those things really inform kind of what uh, we'll be talking about today. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so tell us, tell us a little bit about you and church. What, what was, what was church, what has church been like for you growing up and, and what's your context for that? Yeah, so I grew up going to church. Um, my Nana and Pa, my mom's parents, um, were very big into church and I grew up mostly going with them, did vacation Bible school, went on Sunday mornings with them. Um, have wonderful memories of kind of uh, going to church, getting all dressed up, and then coming back and having a big um, breakfast as a family. But as I got older, um, we sort of drifted away from that church for a variety of reasons. Um, and we wound up going to a different non-denominational Christian church, just my mom and I. And as I was navigating that church, but also being... Um, kind of a preteen and then becoming a teenager, um, realizing that I was queer and knowing that um, I had listened to the pastor say some really harmful things about queerness, um, I started to feel a little bit of a, dr a drift between me and church. And then I remember um, I went on vacation and missed a Sunday of sort of youth group and all of the activities. And when I came back, um, a person in my youth group made a really sort of snarky comment about, um, well, if you can't, you know, make it to church, if you can't be here consistently, then maybe you just shouldn't be here at all. And I felt like that was probably rooted in something else, like everyone had missed a Sunday here and there. Um, but I remember I was at the age at that point where my disability was starting to develop. I was starting to experience more and more chronic pain. We also had stuff going on in my family and going to church consistently just wasn't going to um, happen. And I no longer felt safe being in this group if they were going to judge my um, attendance record. Mm -hmm. And so we stepped away then. And by the time I left home, I had seen on the internet so many hateful messages about my identities, about queerness and disability and wanting to erase and fix the aspects of who I was. But I told myself I would move to Chicago for, for school, and I did. I went to undergrad and did my master's and now med school, all in Chicago at the same school. Um, 
And I told myself, I'm not going to pursue faith. Um, I want to be out. I want to be proud of who I am. I want to make genuine, authentic friendships. Um, And the church has not been the space where that's happened. So Mm -hmm. forward a little bit to junior year. um, Same thing going on. Just told everyone I didn't believe in God, wasn't a Christian. Even though in the back of my mind, I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I still feel a connection with God, but it's hard to explain saying you don't believe in something you are also feel connected to. Um, so it was easier to just say, you know, nah. <laughs> um, but I was sitting in a coffee shop <laughs> and um, this guy comes up to me. And if I'm being really honest with you, I like reached for my headphones. I was like a guy coming up to me in a coffee shop. I assume it's not going to be anything pleasant um, in this conversation. I assume <laughs> I'll be hit on. It'll be uncomfortable. Um, all that kind of stuff. So um, I let him uh, talk to me for a second. And he just said, hey, I'm starting a new ministry at UIC. Um, which is the school I go to. And you seem to know a lot about UAC. A lot of people talk to you about it in this coffee shop. Um, Could we grab coffee sometime? And in my mind, I knew it was going to be a lot easier to just be like, yeah, sure, here's my email, and then delete it. Um, But I got his email, and the signature was like, let's let's get inclusive, UIC.org. And I was like, okay, corny, but also (laughs) let's click. So I clicked and it literally said, believer or doubter, LGBTQ or straight, all this other stuff, you're welcome here. And I decided to get coffee with him. Um, and now that that man, um, Rich Havard, is my pastor, my boss, one of my close friends. And because of him inviting me into that, that ministry, um, I was able to explore faith again. And now I've been on staff for years. Um, the only issue is... I only have a space I'm leading in faith. I don't have a space where I feel safe and comfortable just being a person exploring my own faith. Um, The churches that I've tried have never been able to create full space for all of who I am. If they accept me for being queer, they're not accessible. And if they're accessible, they're often not um, accepting of folks who are uh, queer and wanting to explore their faith. So no church home right now. A little bit frustrated with the church overall but really grateful to be shaping a ministry that is intentionally led by uh, queer, disabled folks of color um, who sometimes believe in God and sometimes don't. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Wow. I think I, I, I want to just throw out before anybody else, um, that frustration that like you feel and resonate with is definitely like the underlying thing that I think the four of us like really resonate with in very different ways. Um, but I think that in a lot of ways, either if, if you're any sort of leader in a church, either you grow and I've seen it all over the place. I saw it this week with, with somebody I respect, either you grow complacent in the situation and you kind of go, Oh, well, this is the best that it's ever been. So why change it? or you grow frustrated because it could be so much better. Um, And so I I say all that to say that like in in a big way, I resonate with what you're saying right there, that you're leading a ministry and you're, you're part of it from that aspect, but you, you, you haven't found that community within a church, within a ministry. Um, And I have nothing, absolutely nothing else to add. I just wanted to like, say that to you that like you're not alone like <laughs> you're in great company here because that's how we all feel yeah. Yeah. because we're making those safe spaces mm-hmm. so it's you know we're in leadership and we all know you know it being in leadership how exhausting it can be to be the one that's leading and not have a place where you can just kind of you know rest and feel safe and just not have to be the one in charge or doing things or organizing anything. I think for me too, it's the question of implementation. So when I was, I just left a church um, a little while back that is super popular among my friends and other queer Christians in Chicago. But I left because not because they just didn't know how to be accessible, which was true, 
But to me, I don't mind sharing how you can become accessible. I don't mind sharing my knowledge, my experience. And I felt that way even before I professionally taught about disability. Um, like I would always be willing to share about that because it's my life. Um, it's part of my spectrum of human needs. It's just part of who I am. So I was always willing to talk about it. But the difference lies with what happens with that conversation. Because in the ministry I work for, I can have the conversations, but then implementing the knowledge is my responsibility and I'm paid for it. So it happens. Mm -hmm. Um, In that church, though, I had the conversations over and over again with various pastors, with lay leaders. I wrote out plans. Um, I made phone calls on the church's behalf. I formally taught them a lecture with a 10 point guide for accessibility. I did everything that I have professionally learned to do as a consultant and did what I knew would fit in their culture as a member of their church. And implementation never happened. Um, It would happen sometimes with Mm -hmm. some people, but if there was a guest pastor, I would feel tempted to just walk out because I knew the things that I needed weren't going to happen. There was no consistency plan. Um, Or sometimes I would see them kind of half-assed and then I would feel almost more insulted. Like they were not trying to be truly accessible, but instead just trying to do enough to keep me quiet. Um, Mm -hmm. And the last part that was so hard is implementation would happen sometimes in the areas that felt the most obvious, which was typically Sunday church service. But I kept trying to go to social events over and over again And there were never access notes, or if they were, they would be a single sentence Mm -hmm. that only spoke to the needs of wheelchair users. Um, Mm -hmm. Or there would be an access note that simply told me the space is not accessible, period. Sorry. Um, And so I'm not going to spend time going to Sunday service if I'm only going to see these people at Sunday service, because then it's no different than seeing them in like the classroom at school or whatever. They're not a close supportive faith community. They're just these people I sit next to once a week and, and not allowed to join any other time. Yeah. So yeah. Implementation is really the issue. (laughs) So you, you named something that I think is so important. And in my experience, most people have never thought about like, what is an access note? What is an accessibility audit? Mm. I'm throwing that in there, but um, just, you know, an, a, a sky level overview of what these things are and why they're so important. Yeah. So accessibility audits and access notes are something that I talk about and teach about a lot because um, folks often aren't even aware of what accessibility period means. So if I can start there, mm-hmm. Um, accessibility at a base level means that all people, regardless of how their body or mind functions, can um, fully participate in your space. Um, can't, not just enter, not just exist, but fully participate in your space. And that participation doesn't have to look identical to everyone because human beings are different. <laughs> like sometimes our participation will look different, disabled or not. Um, but accessibility, if that's the definition, goes so much further than a ramp. Um, It is not just about a ramp and a stall that a wheelchair can fit in and sometimes a quiet room for someone who may have sensory overload, which are the three things I find most people have done in their space. Um, But it's so much more than that. Um, It's about what people would be seeing and hearing and touching and how they would be moving and where they would be positioning themselves and also what language they would hear, what stigma they may face. Accessibility is a holistic concept. And we often forget that it's about disability culture um, and understanding. It's not just about um, physically making it into a building and then being present. So in an audit, um, I start with the physical stuff, but I really um, expand it beyond what we often think about as physical accessibility, because it shows them that even Mm -hmm. the most common form of accessibility is bigger than we could have imagined. And then we go from there and do sensory accessibility, emotional accessibility, cultural accessibility. um, And the audit gives you a chance to kind of nitpick your own space and how it is accessible and inaccessible and ideally plan for how it can transition from inaccessible to accessible. That's awesome. Wow, that's, 
That's amazing. <laughs> like, where can we get like like every space needs this? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. The churches that I've been in a part of in the past, it's like it never comes up until someone with a disability shows up, is visiting, and then suddenly, oh, there isn't an accessible bathroom available at all in the building. Or, you know, that sort of thing. Or if a deaf person comes in, there's no translation. There's no signing. There's no, you know. Um, captions. Words. You, captions. captions. Yeah. There's there's nothing until it's needed, you know. And we're like, oh, I guess maybe we should think about doing this. And it's like an afterthought. And it's not until, even until like maybe the person has been there maybe visited a couple of weeks if they even come back right so it's like oh maybe we should consider it think about it what do we need to do and then it gets tabled because it have to has to go through all these little processes of chair people you know committees that we have to discuss it and so then eventually the person leaves and then they're like they just drop the whole thing yeah, um, I have not yet had a consulting conversation, um, both in terms of my like actual paid consulting and sometimes for some orgs, I just mm. chat with them because I care about their mission and want it to be accessible. Um, I have yet to have one where I have not in some way, shape or form been asked the question, we don't have any disabled people. Why is it important that we do it now? Okay, Jesus point help. one, okay. you have no idea if you have, you have no idea if you have disabled people in your right. um, midst, right. because right. if this is how you're approaching it, they probably haven't outed themselves right. um, if they are not visibly disabled. Um, but of right. course, we're not going to come if you're not accessible. Of course, we're not going to come do that labor. Um and so, for example, the church I've been speaking about, um, well, now it has a new location, but previously has had four steps to get to the entrance. And if you were just visiting because you saw the church on Google and you were like, hell yeah, queer inclusive, let's go, um, you would walk or crutch or cane or wheel to those stairs and be like, well, shit, going back home. Um but in reality, there was an accessible entrance. There was just no signage. There was no one outside to greet you, et cetera. Um, so, of course, we're not going to show up if that's the starting point. Of course, we're not going to show up if we walk in and we have low vision and your welcome is your pamphlet, whatever the handout is, the bulletin, church bulletin. Um, <laughs> if it's words, not, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, if it's not large print, uh, you know, if we're seeing these signs mm. immediately, it tells us that not only are members of our community not already present, but also you haven't done the work to make sure when we start showing up, we stay present. Mm. Um, and you're missing out. Disabled people are amazing. Like our perspectives on the world and the way we view community and people and bodies and faith and all of this stuff. I have learned so much from my community and mm. so many other people can't because they don't think we're worth investing in having present um mm. which i could hop on a whole different soapbox about that in terms of how expensive it is in america to make things accessible um, so it truly is mm. an investment yep. but we're worth it and if you call around enough people will help yeah. you pay for it like just spend yeah. the time <laughs> yeah you know you, you mentioned another thing that uh i think a lot of us miss you you named it briefly of this idea of being invisible um, the, the reality that so many of us have only imagined someone in a wheelchair and even our imaginations about wheelchairs are, oh, well, if you're in a wheelchair, then you're always in a wheelchair. And they don't see it as one of many means that people might use to, to make sure that they have mobile access. So could you talk a little bit about invisible identities? Yeah, so... I love that question um, for me and folks in my situation specifically, because I am one of the uh, folks who transition in and out of invisibility all the time with my disability. So 
on a lot of days, you cannot look at me and tell that I'm disabled. Um, if you really watched um, enough, you would see some of the ways I move that are a little bit different. But um, usually you just can't tell. Other days I use my cane. And then other days I do use a wheelchair. And even on the days I am using my wheelchair, I sometimes stand from it and sometimes sit in it. Um, sometimes sit up on the edge of it. Like however my body wants to use that tool in that moment, it shall. Um, and so I see the way people shift their approach to me every single time um, I shift how I'm using my mobility aid. Mm -hmm. So a couple yeah. just quick examples. Um, if I ask someone where the elevator is on a day I have no mobility aid, it's very common for people to look me up and down looking to see, does she have both legs? Is there an injury? Is there a boot? Is there a crutch? Is there a cast? Whatever. Um, and sometimes they blatantly ask me, why? Why do you need it? Um, when I'm using my cane, um, there's like this in-between where care? people will, um, right? Why do you care? Um, there's like this in-between where um, folks will sometimes look at me with a question, but they often kind of seem to resolve it in their mind. Like, oh, young person with cane must have had injury or something like that. When I'm using my chair, though, people will rush to do everything for me. Like they'll try to open doors for me. They'll try to get things off shelves for me. They'll um, offer me all kinds of like love and support or they will not even look at me. Um, it is either they are so, they're so uncomfortable either way. And they either try to resolve that comfort through avoidance or they try to resolve that comfort um, through like, fixing whatever guilt I'm bringing up for them <laughs> and doing all the good deeds they possibly can. <laughs> all, the, all the penance. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so um, I think there's, it's so important because not only are we focused, we're hyper-focused on disability as a visible external mm -hmm. static condition but it also right. means that we're endlessly missing what it means uh, to have neurodivergence. We're endlessly mm -hmm. missing what it means to, to have things like chronic pain um, mm -hmm. that, again, ebb and flow. Um, what, what other kinds of scenarios tend to, to just be consistent frustration points when it comes to, to just navigating community? Yeah, I think, um, well, one thing I just wanted to say, Darren, is I got so caught up in my frustration about how people treat me when I use my chair that I didn't even talk about invisible identity. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Please. Well, I was just going to say, I think that that's true for a lot of things, though. It's not just um, disability, like as someone who is queer, but is in a quote unquote straight passing relationship, like I see a lot of different ways that invisible identities are kind of um, dismissed. And so my plea for folks always is just kind of like, be willing to ask and also be willing to trust the answer. So if you say, um, oh, you can't take the stairs and I say, correct, like done, trust me enough as a human to just know that that's what I mean. And yes, I, that's what I said, like we're done moving on. That's the quote of the there. year, just trust. <laughs> yeah, like just trust that people know themselves well enough to know um, their identities and their needs um, related to disability and beyond. I said but what I said. Of, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of this consistent is... frustration, though, um, I think for me, it is this like a hurdle that a lot of people, I particularly hear people my age, um, I'm 26, so kind of in that weird like, okay, I'm really an adult, but like, am I? Um, phase? Um, Nobody's ever actually an adult. <laughs> We're all faking it, I promise. <laughs> um, this is kind of the stage where you don't have that built-in like potential pool of friends that you do in high school and undergrad. Yes. And for me, the most frustrating thing is letting folks know about my disability and having them... Um, either walk away, that's happened a few times, um, 
include me only in some moments. Um, mm. So if they know it's accessible, they'll invite me, but they're still willing to make inaccessible plans um, and then just not invite me that time. Um, so kind of like a in your pocket when you need me friend, um, mm. but not like a true all the time included friend. Um, it's also frustrating for me when people are unwilling to learn beyond me. That happens a lot in community. Um, one positive example is Rich, who I mentioned earlier, who uh, is the executive director of the ministry I've been mentioning. Um, he spent some time learning about disability from me interpersonally, but then also in terms of how our ministry could do better. And then he stopped the learning from me and went and started learning somewhere else because he recognized I've learned Zoe's perspective, but I'm getting to the point where this would be like paid labor that I, that I am asking her to do. And there are a lot of other resources. Um, so while he can still listen to me and we can still share ideas, he's going other places too. And it's frustrating when people in community aren't willing to take that step. So every time we right. hang out, I'm educating on something yeah. um, in some capacity, um, which, you know, part of being friends is learning about each other. So when people ask, uh, a new friend recently asked, when you're using your chair, is it your preference that I ask before I push you, that I push you if I see you struggling? Like, wh how do you prefer I navigate that? Loved that question. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> rare question, right? Like rarely are people um, asking that. But those questions, I don't mind. That doesn't feel like labor. That mm -hmm. feels like getting to know me, Zoe, right. and not yeah. fixing all yeah. of your ableism. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's one thing I, I mentioned last week. We have one... Uh, deaf gentleman in the church and he's been part of the of our church since he was a baby um and this is just a little bit of backstory for you zoe so everybody else sorry um but when he was younger his parents started paying for an interpreter to come to the church and about 10 years ago i think it was about 10 years ago the church just took over that responsibility we said hey um he's, he's part of us. Like we should have done this a long time ago. He's part of our church. He's part of the family. And we're, this is just going to be a, a service that we provide to him. And so every single week we have an interpreter uh, who comes, but something that I've been kind of running into, because I'm, I'm trying to push for us to be more uh, uh, inclusive in these ways, more accessible. And so something that I've, I've kind of, the, the wall that I've hit right now is when I say, hey, we need, um, we should get, <clears throat> we should get an interpreter who feels comfortable being on video. Um, because the one, the, the woman who comes is not comfortable being on video. And so she just signs to him and that's it. And I'm like, we could put this on our live stream. Like it could be a picture in picture thing. And, and we should, um, like we should look for somebody, we should find somebody that could do this, even if it's a little bit more money. And the question that I keep on getting is, but Kevin, this guy is fine with it. He, this is all that he needs. This is all that he wants. He doesn't want anybody else. He knows her. And besides, it's like two things that you said, right? We already know his perspective and we're comfortable with it. And also there's not a market for it here. And I'm like, no, there is like, we're a town of a hundred thousand there. I promise you there is a market. There's no other church in town. And I've checked that has an interpreter. Why would we not? And, and it's this hard place to be in. And so to wrap this up into a question, how can we push past that where like, I, I recognize, for example, I recognize that we should find other perspectives. Um, I've, I've tried, I've started making some inroads with our local, um, deaf organizations at the two colleges in town. Um, just kind of just, again, just making inroads with them, but how can I advocate, I guess, or push the rest of the, the, the other people who have more of a say in it than I do, um, to, into learning from somebody else into looking like, like doing what you're saying here, where 
it's not just the one person educating them, but they're looking for somebody else. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So I have a talk coming up, a keynote that I'm giving that um, is about the urgency of accessibility and why people feel urgency around access, why disabled people specifically feel it. And I think kind of the idea is that I've been wrapping into this talk are exactly what um, folks like you're talking about need to hear. Um, accessibility is something that is not well understood, not well implemented, um, not frequently considered. And it takes brave leaders. It takes vulnerable leaders who are willing to do what leaders are meant to do, which is learn, try, mess up, relearn and try again. It takes those people to push us as a collective society a step further. Can you imagine if you all of a sudden had an interpreter in picture in, uh, in picture in picture in a live stream? Can you imagine what every other church that has a live stream is going to start thinking? Wow, now we're straight up sending the message that we don't care about deaf folks. Um, and while deaf folks are only one sub-community of the disability community, that's a huge seed to plant. And I try hard in my work to be blunt with folks that I'm asking them to do what leaders are meant to do um, and like push things forward, even if other folks don't see the need, even if other folks have not had the conversation. Um, well, folks haven't seen the need and haven't had the conversation because staying unaware and not talking about it is easier and cheaper. It doesn't mean it's right. Um, so that's a sermon. Sure. The, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Sure. The, the person in your church may be comfortable with this interpreter. Um, and you have such an opportunity to create a change in culture, but you have to remember that at this point, it would be pretty inaccessible for him to shift his entire church experience mm -hmm. So now the question is, um, how do you find like a both, a both and, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. and that may be sitting down with him and asking him, are you okay with shifting or not? If he is mm -hmm. great. If he's mm -hmm. not ask him as a deaf person in your church, what are his thoughts? Um, mm -hmm. what else would he have to offer? If anything, um, preferably like buy him a meal while doing so or something along those lines <laughs> and then start looking at deaf experiences on Twitter, on Instagram, et cetera, particularly around church and see what other people have in mind. So you can um, push the envelope a little bit. Yeah. It makes me think like how this conversation should just fit in with so much that we hear from church, because a lot of the conversation is always, we, you know, wanting more people to come to the church you know, wanting to figure out how to raise attendance, wanting to figure out, you know, how to reach out. Like that is a lot of the community, like the the conversations within just different church groups. So it makes you wonder, well, who particularly are you trying to reach out to? Because if you want to reach out and you want more people in your church, then you would think that this would make sense that you would want your church to be as accessible, inclusive, all these things so that all people can come to your church. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like throwing, like not necessarily like throwing it back at them, but just like, I feel like just framing that and just really like questioning people like, well, who really do you want to come to your church then? Because if this is a goal, I mean, outreach, outreach, outreach. I hear this all the time in these youth, youth ministry groups. Well, who are you outreaching to then? Yeah. Um, I think when I hear that too, because that's so common, right? And as someone who works in a campus ministry, like I'm constantly asking churches, like, like I hear the stories of these young folks who are uh, queer, disabled, folks of color, immigrants, et cetera. And they're like, well, church may be reaching out, but they're not reaching out to me. Um, and what does that, what does that mean for the church moving forward? If all those folks, like uh, our campus ministry is very much a microcosm of the United States. If all those folks aren't feeling invited, what does that actually mean for church growth? Right. And right. so much of the kind of fault in this idea of outreach and growth, um, from my perspective, is the folks having these conversations view church as the building and the system that has operated within that building. And so people mm -hmm. need to fit into that 
But in reality, church is the people. So the building and the system housed in the building needs to shift to encompass all of the church that already exists outside those walls. Preach. Preach that. That's such a hard conversation to have with, with church leaders also, because like every single pastor I know would say, no matter what, what their political leaning, what denomination, what tradition, no matter what, they would all agree that the church is the people and where we go is where the church goes. But most of those pastors would also say, well, we can't make our space any more accessible than it is. Because I mean, the church is just what the church is. And like, wait a second, now, now you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Now you're, are we all the church or is this the church? Like, like is this just a building like you preach on Sunday morning? Or do you, re- like, like, do you actually believe what you're preaching? Or is the money really more important than saying, hey, even again, political and social beliefs aside, we really do believe that every person should have access to the church, to the gospel, to being part of this community. And it's, it's like, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a mental block that, that people have where when we start talking about that investment and that, that true accessibility for everybody, Suddenly they're like, whoa, whoa, wait, there's, there's something that, that just uh, short fires in their brain where they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about because we're so caught up with doing things this way and that's how it's always been. So that's how it must always be. Kevin, I think what you're getting at in terms of um, like saying we want all the people in the church and want them to have access to community Absolutely agree. Um, We're saying that and not meeting it with action. And I want to kind of just remind folks that it's a little bit bigger than that. Um, It's not just about access to church and the church community. It's about access to God. Um, And I say that because I believe wholeheartedly that God is everywhere and accessible to all. And you do not have to have a church to find and encounter um, God, that all people are loved by God. And as someone who believes that, does feel like she has a relationship with God, although sometimes it's rocky, um, (laughs) and no longer has a church home, I can tell you that maintaining and deepening my relationship with God is super hard without a community to do it in, without people to reflect alongside, without a pastor guiding me and pushing my thoughts. Um, God feels like something I'm always reaching for rather than being enveloped in at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And that shift happened when ableism blocked my ability to go to church. Um, So access to church is important, but access to God and genuine relationship with God um, is also like the the crux of what we're talking about. Yeah. So go for it. So you mentioned you mentioned the the buzzword, right? The ding 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 cuz the word that can make people really upset when you say it. Um but also I think really needs to talk about what is ableism because a lot of people see it may see it as, you know, when you when you mention any of the isms um as an attack or, you know, well I'm not I don't, you know, I don't hate disabled people. But like beyond that, what can you like break that down and really unpack what ableism is? Um, I could. I'm actually going to give a different recommendation because there's someone who has done that work and done it so incredibly well. Um, so Talila Lewis um, has a definition of ableism that is like pretty easily Googleable. Um, T-A-L-I-L-A, Lewis is L-E-W-I-S, definition of ableism. Um, that definition changed my perspective of ableism and really um, gets at the root of ableism. So starting with the basics, um, ableism is a form of discrimination against people who are disabled or neurodivergent. Um, but what Talila Lewis's definition reminds us, um, and folks will um, encounter if they look it up, is that it is deeply rooted in our prioritization of productivity, and it's deeply rooted mm-hmm. in capitalism. Because in the United States in particular, we put people's worth 
um, we tie people's worth to how much they can produce and how much they can be independent. And unfortunately, we also believe that there are only some things you can produce that are worth producing. Therefore, if you're producing something else, like art, um, for example, um, that might not be worth the same as someone who's producing um, by being a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Um, and I encounter that all the time as someone who's in their third year of medical school. <laughs> but um, so ableism is really a devaluation of disabled people. And that can take the form of um, not having accessible buildings. It can also take the form of language. Um, so using words like crazy that are deeply rooted in stigma um, and not challenging ourselves to find alternatives. Um, if you need alternatives, Lydia Brown has a blog post um, called Ableist Words or something very, very close to that. Um, and they give you an alternative to all of the ableist words. Um, it can also take the form of policies. So for example, um, in the queer community, we often celebrate when marriage equality was achieved, but disabled folks still can't marry um, in many instances, no matter what gender they are or gender of their partner, um, because they would lose their benefits. There are laws that prevent um, marriage for those reasons, not to mention disabled folks are often not paid minimum wage, et cetera. So it can root itself in policy. It can be rooted in theology. Um, the theological model of disability literally says that disability is a punishment for sin and an opportunity to repent, to be healed. Um, it can root itself in so many places, but overall, it's really this devaluation of um, people whose bodies and minds don't fit the normal. What we have decided in our broad society is the normal. And just so everyone knows, I've got uh, Talila Lewis's definition of ableism. It says a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societal societally constructed ideas of normal of normality intelligence, excellence, desirability, and productivity. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in anti-Blackness, eugenics, misogyny, colonialism, imperialism, and capitalism. This form of systemic oppression leads to people in society determining who is valuable and worthy based on a person's language, appearance, religion, and or their ability to satisfactorily reproduce or produce, excel, and behave you do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. And to kind of piggyback on that definition right there, I've mentioned my dad before, who is an incredibly smart man. Um, he's a pastor, he's the CFO of an oil and gas company, and he gets paid probably about half of what he should get paid. He gets paid half the salary of, um, of, of, a, of other CFOs in, uh, similarly sized companies with similar sized budgets and revenues, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason for that, and his boss had the CEO and COO of the company who, who are a couple have told him flat out that the reason why is because he doesn't have a college degree in the United States. Now, this is a man who, yes, he speaks English with an accent, but he has perfect syntax, grammar, vocabulary, you could sit down and have a conversation with him for hours. Plus, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. He has saved this company millions of dollars just in the last year alone with COVID and everything that's going on. And this this definition of, of ableism just like hit me so hard because... Uh, systemic oppression based on a person's language. Right. Like, and I've had a lot of folks um, need to deeply unpack the last sentence of this, which is you do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. But if we think about it, it makes perfect sense. A devaluation based off of someone's body or mind and the way it works. Let's think about the way that we in the United States United States treat folks when we see them even walking down the street. I was no. getting the street was coming in there. It, I mean, these um, United States are definitely streets. <laughs> it's rough in the streets. Um, mm -hmm. um, so if we see someone just out in the world that looks different, whether they um, 
look like they're transgender, whether their skin is a different color um, than ours, what, whatever it may be, um, we have assumptions about them instantly. And I, I think we all know that. But what's important to question is how does that also play out in policy, employment, et cetera. So I often say, um, kind of when folks are asking me about this definition that I, that I pull up, um, the way I like to say it is, for the most part, all disabled people experience ableism. Not all people who experience ableism are disabled. So it's something that will deeply and systemically and thoroughly impact disabled people. But of course, it will spill over. Um, in the same way that when we think about white supremacy, all people are harmed by it in some capacity, but there are absolutely folks who are much more deeply, systemically, and thoroughly harmed by that system of oppression. Absolutely. And I, I, I appreciate you uh, bringing, bringing these connecting points, helping us see how all of this intersects. Um, because, again, like people, people seem to have this uh, gut reaction that saying something you did or said was ableist is somehow a judgment of their character or a judgment of their intentions. Mm -hmm. And just like discussions about racism, just like discussions about transphobia, we tend to get into this defensive thing rather than spending the time to listen, to learn, and to figure out how to do better so that we don't keep repeating the same language and repeating the same words and so forth. Um, and, you know, it, it, I just want to shout out to how much of Christian music uses ableist language and imagery to oh, tell yes. us how good God is. <laughs> it ain't right. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And um, Lynette, a friend of mine who also works for the ministry, um, she's done a great job of figuring out how to change language, but it's not easy because if you change everything that is like sexist, racist, queerphobic, and ableist in Christian music, you, you pretty much change half the song. Like mm -hmm. you just wrote a new song right there. <laughs> Um, so absolutely, uh, lots of things to be changed in music, but also in sermons. It's common in sermons as well. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, um, bringing it back into a church atmosphere, um, I have seen numerous times when somebody that is disabled comes in and they might be visiting or whatever, or they're, they're just new to the church or something like that. And instantly the leadership team, the pastoral team or whoever wants to pray for them and make a big scene over it. And I've seen it in, in healing services that I've been at because I was in the Pentecostal charismatic movement for a very long time. And so whenever somebody, you know, we'd have a healing service or whatever, we'd have to bring them up, even if they didn't want to, if they were standing back, you know, we'd be like, come on, come on, we'll pray for you. Come on up. And, you know, and so the person I'm sure has already been prayed for a million other times. And, you know, this is, this is how they are. And I feel like the church has, has this idea of like, what makes a person whole. And if you're disabled, if you, you don't, if you, you know, are blind if you're deaf or if your leg is shorter than the other <laughs> leg, because that's a common one, <clears throat> you often get prayed for and, and we expect you to be healed. And if you're not, then it's obviously your fault that you weren't healed. Um, so I, f I just, I know that this is probably triggering for a lot of people because it's a very common thing I feel like in churches that we need to stop doing. And so I, I want to unpack a couple of things there, if you don't mind. First of all, non-consensual healing is always abuse. All you have done is give them something new to heal from, yes. period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then we think about the fact that there's an assumption that disability must be healed, which has right. to operate on the principle that disability is a form of brokenness. Mm -hmm. And disability is not. Um, disability is a culture. It is a political stance. 
It is a way of operating in the world. It is how I understand time and movement and relationship and self and medicine and faith. And if you were to heal me of that, I, as I am here today, would no longer exist. Mm. You telling me you want to heal my disability is you telling me you do not want me. Finally, though, I do want to add kind of an asterisk on that and remind folks that as is true for many identities, when you have a disability and you are a part of a, um, a society like the one we're in right now, you will inevitably have internalized ableism. And so it is not our place, whether we are disabled or not, to shame any disabled person for wanting or not wanting healing. Mm. It is our responsibility, though, to not treat them as if they are broken and in need of healing and to help push society to be less ableist so that fewer people assume from the get-go that they are in need of of healing simply Mm -hmm. because of who they are. And then the final, I know this is a lot, but the final little like double asterisk I'll put on this one is that disability is so incredibly diverse. So if someone um, is deaf, for example, since we keep using that example, um, they may identify as culturally deaf, as a linguistic minority, and, and will likely be very offended by the idea of you wanting to heal and erase that part of them. Someone who lives with debilitating chronic pain, on the other hand, may have a powerful, strong disability identity, may have disability pride, and may still say, hell yes, if there is a cure, bring it on. I want it today. Let's go. (laughs) Um, And all of those things are okay. All of them are part of the disability community. And it's really inappropriate when disabled or non-disabled people shame folks for their individual disabled experience. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. It it begs the question... um, are there any are there any people who are writing on uh, theology and disability that you would say we should really be looking looking to or learning from? And I know that's kind of putting you on the spot, but does anyone come to mind? Yeah, there's a couple of folks. So one that I want to point out, um, she does not identify as disabled, but um, I I know her and have worked with her and do deeply trust her. I've also, of course, read the book I want to recommend. Um, But Bethany McKinney Fox wrote a book called Disability in the Way of Jesus. And the reason I like recommending that one is because it truly was a non-disabled person doing the labor of asking other non-disabled people to like do the labor. (laughs) Um, So it explores where are all these ableist things like taking root and how can we um, kind of unpack the way we are building assumptions around uh, particularly Jesus's healing in the Bible. Um, so healing the blind, healing the sick, whatever. How can we develop a better understanding of that that's not rooted in disability being broken? Um, and then there are so many, um, but another one I just want to bring up because I think we so often forget um, that psychiatric illness is under the disability umbrella and psychiatric accessibility matters. Um And it can also be complicated. Um, Psychiatric accessibility is the one that I struggle the most with consulting on, um, even as someone living with depression and anxiety and panic. Um, It's just just hard because Mm -hmm. psychiatric disabilities can often be unpredictable um, in the same way that my chronic pain is not always predictable. So sometimes I'm like, I don't know what my access means. I'll tell you that morning. (laughs) It's hard, you know? But David Finnegan Hosey has a few books um, out there. One in particular is called Christ on the Psych Ward. And I just think that uh, church leaders looking to explore that this concept would be really remiss to not also look into psychiatric perspectives on all of this. Um, But truly, there are so many. There's an entire institute on theology and disability um, out there where folks can go to learn and explore um, and find resources um, as well. Yeah. Uh, not to put a shameless plug, but also, um, I'm on Twitter a lot. And, uh, while most of my Twitter is about medicine because met, Ooh, medicine and ableism y'all like church and ableism is bad, but 
medicine and ableism. Uh, we might have to do a whole that... another series. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't, yeah, I can't even, I'm not even going to try to make a sentence because you'll just, I won't shut up for the rest of the night. But, <laughs> but um, if anyone really wants more reading, they, I'm totally happy to answer a message on um, Twitter and help pick out something that, that kind of makes sense for them and their context. Um, and then the last one I wanted to say, I'm struggling so much to remember the name of, but there's a literal guide to making your church accessible. And I'm going to see if I can find it while we wrap up. <laughs> oh, yeah. And while you're this looking for that, I also, you, you mentioned, um, you know, sometimes they're like disabled people don't want to be healed. Like, Mm-hmm. You know, like you, like you mentioned the, the, the deaf person versus somebody with chronic pain. And it reminded me of the story, uh, in John where Jesus, uh, comes up to, to a disabled man who has been disabled since birth. And the first thing he asks him is, do you want to be healed? Mm, and yes. I've always heard that preached as like, well, of course he does. Like who wouldn't like Jesus is looking for the faith of this man. And I've always had an issue with that interpretation, but I've never known a di- like a different way to put it. And right now you said that, like, like sometimes people don't want to be healed. So- sometimes that's not something that they need healing from. Yeah. And suddenly that, that story, it's, it's John chapter five. That story just made so much sense. Like all of a sudden in, in this context that you put it in for me. Right. Like if we're interested in healing, because I would argue like faith can have some healing qualities, but why don't we just ask someone what they're seeking healing for? Like disabled people have trauma and pain and shit they want healed from. It just might not be their disability. The guide I was talking about is um, written by Topher Indress and it's called Accessible Congregations. A Theological and Practical Guide to Disabilities for Faith Communities. Um, I have a copy of it and I've used it myself when sometimes I'm at a loss because for me, as someone who works in ministry but has never gone to like seminary, um, I don't do like the like the Bible parts of our ministry. I do, I do our meal for folks experiencing homelessness, um, which is perfect for my like public health background and everything. Um but sometimes people do ask me about specific theology things and I'm like, you're, this is the wrong, I don't know. Um, but the guide might know right. <laughs> how I can at least start thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot to know. Um, I, I, I want to. One person is an expert right. on everything. I, 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 I want to like, just have one more trying to find better nonviolent language, but one more bomb to detonate (laughs) of things that uh, I don't think we think about well. And the thing that I've been working with in my own mind and wrapping my my head around is this idea that disability, and again, I'm, I'm gleaning from several people that I'm not great at naming names, but disability isn't so much about what our bodies or our minds can't do it's about what our society won't accommodate yeah does that make sense and if so could you talk about that so the exact thing you just said but in a different roundabout way is that we are using the medical model in america and we need to shift to the social model that's exactly what you you essentially just said So the medical model says there's an issue with your body or mind, and therefore your body or mind needs to be fixed. The social model says there's an issue with society or a structure in society, and because all people deserve full access, that's what needs to be fixed. So it places the problem within the person in the medical model and within the approach to disability in the world um, in the social model. And so what's interesting is you'll often hear people say we need to do away with the medical model and go to the social model. And um, most of my research is on the impact of the medical model in uh, primary care access for disabled folks. So 
in some ways I'm tempted to say absolutely yes. Um, like the medical model has led to eugenics, to forced sterilization, to mm-hmm. um, medical decision-making that has cost lives or length of lives or has diminished quality of life. And I, I use that a little bit loosely because there are weird assumptions around quality of life when it comes to disability. Um, but just, you know, spoiler, disabled people can have very high quality of life, including their disability. (laughs) But um, there are also some things about the medical model that um, I would like to hang on to, um, like proper funding for healthcare. Um, The medical model kind of posits that we go that direction. Um, So I guess I would say I'm like 95% social model, but if we could hang on to the 5% of medical model that's not violent and horrifically ableist i'd be cool with that um but (laughs) the social model does it calls us to recognize that there is not a thing wrong with someone's mind or body functioning differently um there's something wrong with having a society that excludes those folks so instead Mm -hmm. of trying to fix the person's legs let's build a proper ramp um instead of trying to use applied behavioral analysis therapy, ABA therapy, and fix autistic children. Let's create a world that understands communication can be broad and beautiful, even when it's not in words and it's not always calm. Um, and sometimes it involves gestures and not just you know spoken language. Um, let's shift society to be a little bit more willing to accept the beauty of the human spectrum instead of trying to erase the human spectrum and make us all the same. Oh, man, I'm thinking about schools right now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. What would change with the way we teach our children right? with that model? And the because... reason, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just got excited. No, go for it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> One of the reasons I love Talila Lewis's definition is it calls us to recognize that fixing ableism really does benefit everyone, but it particularly benefits um, like folks who are often being left behind, even if they're not disabled. So I taught health ed in um, uh, Chicago public school classrooms for four years. And I often saw that kiddos were falling behind in school. And when I would talk to them, it was very clearly rooted in trauma, racism, disinvestment in their communities, witnessing gun violence as a specific, uh, to name a specific trauma, Um, And while they didn't have, like, by definition, a disability, if we had had a classroom that was anti-ableist and used universal design, um, they would have also been able to navigate school in a different way, um, while in the meantime, we pushed for better investment in their neighborhood, et cetera. Um, So ableism has to be battled because disabled people matter, yes, but it has to be battled because all people, like, Ooh, I didn't want to use that language. You, you did. Um, <laughs> it, it was not coming across as the other version of that. Okay, good. So please continue. Um, but I, to, I started to say it. I was like, oof. Um, but really, it has to be battled because all people deserve a chance to fulfill their potential and their goals, whatever they those may be, to, to have um, respect for whatever yeah. their goals and their form of productivity may be to, to have value simply because they are and not because they are doing um, or operating in space in a particular way. Yeah. I am like almost in tears. Like there, there's <laughs> I actually a, am too. <laughs> there's a beauty in what you're describing. Like we, 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 it's about the time to wrap up. Um, but if, if there's just anything else in your heart as far as what what's the vision what's the what's the hope you have what's the what's the if I could you know have it my way like what what would you love to see in the world I've been thinking a lot lately about how my faith will guide my medical practice um, I've spent the last three weeks on an advocacy rotation and so my job is to provide medical care but also to identify gaps um, in people's finances housing transportation etc and that has called me to think about you know um, as a person of faith how do I bring that aspect of who I am into this work in a way that respects my patients um, and also respects my own morals and values 
And the word, as corny as it may sound, that keeps bubbling up for me is just love. Like if there's anything that all the churches I've been a part of have preached, it's that God is love and Christians are supposed to be folks of love. And you hear that in many other religions as well. But we don't ever think about what does that logistically mean? Um, Sometimes we think about what it means in practice, like love your neighbor, be kind to everyone, try not to judge, blah, blah, blah. But in practice, what does that mean? Logistically, what does that mean? If we took that to be the truth fully and wholeheartedly, how would we rewrite our policies? Would we battle to get a church building that was accessible? Um, Would we say maybe people are more important than like the historical upkeep of this building? Um, Like, would we make different decisions if we truly asked ourselves in every moment, what choice here would be rooted in genuine love? Um, And I don't think we're doing that. I don't think we're doing that well. Um, I can identify moments that I've failed to do that. And so my big call would be, this all gets overwhelming and it can be so, so scary. And messing up is scary. Our world is sometimes not kind when you make a mistake. Um, But know that at the end of the day, like what matters is that you made the decisions out of love. You reflected on your mistakes from a place of love. You decided to do differently the next time out of love. Um, And like, you'll be all right. (laughs) Like, uh, I don't know if... um, I don't know if I will see us have a world where churches understand disability and they are fully accessible, but I do believe if we actually put love into practice, um, I'd probably have a church home again. Um, I'd probably be able to reflect on God in a space that uh, invited all of who I am, not just the pieces of me that they have the most uh, knowledge about, the most practice in inviting. Gosh, love really, really does win. Mm-hmm every time that was awesome thank you zoe for sharing your thoughts with us and for discussing this very important and relevant topic um i know i have a lot to do um on my own when it comes to ableism and just being better about the terms i use and how i'm treating other people and and how I can be a better human and in this world. And so thank you so much for joining us here on the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. Um, We will put Zoe's contact information, how you can get in touch with her in our notes down below. So thank you for joining us. And um, we hope to, um, you can join us next week with us. Thanks. I'm so terrible at that. I hate no, it. you're great. <laughs> no, I love like, it. I feel like I'm repeating things, and I'm like they're oh, always oh, awkward. Because it's like you have to think, and instead of just yes. talking normally like we would, I I feel so be, awkward when it I do feels it too. Very scripted, too. So yeah. If yeah. I, you know, maybe it it might help. And Zoe, sorry, you have to be part of this conversation. It <laughs> might help if we just like wrote a script out. Probably. That, good. that would probably be a good. Yeah. Idea.